The title of this evening's talk <clears throat> is The Liberating Embrace of Anicca, Impermanence. And from the Buddha. So you should view this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. And from Crowfoot, who was the leader of the Blackfoot American Indian tribe in the early 1900s, what is life? It is the flash of a firefly in night. It's the breath of buffalo in wintertime. It's the little shadow that runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. And from wandering Japanese monk Ryokan, our life in this world, to what should I compare it? It's like an echo resounding through the mountain into the empty sky. And from physicist, astronomer, and writer Adam Frank, who very recently said this, from birth to the unknown moment of our passing, we ride a river of change. And yet in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, we exhaust ourselves in an endless search for solidity. We hunger for something that lasts, some idea or principle that rises above time and change. We hunger for certainty. That's a big problem. It might even be the problem, says Adam Frank. A a Tibetan monk once told me about a place where he grew up in a very isolated uh, area high in the mountains of Tibet where people have no access to matches. And of course, there's no electricity or gas for light, warmth, or cooking. So for these necessities of life, in this part of the world, a fire is necessary. To start a fire without matches each day can be quite a project. It takes some time. So the people who uh, live in this area never let their fires go completely out. Every day, all day, they keep a small fire burning, and at night they cover it with ashes so that in the morning there's a glowing coal to start their day. The Buddhist monks in this area practice so deeply with impermanence as their practice that at night they don't try to save any coals because they're so sure that in the morning they might not be alive. Also, when they finish their last cup of tea at night, they turn their cup over for this same reason, to let the next person know that they've finished, really finished. So every night, they prepare to die. They're ready. The deep knowing and living with impermanence is an entryway 
a gateway to liberation, a gateway to freeing the mind, freeing the heart. The only thing that we can really, really know for sure is the constancy of change. It's the most basic fact of our existence. Nothing lasts, nothing stays the same. So paradoxically, the only thing that we can hold on to is the realization, the intuitive insight of anicca, the Pali word for impermanence. The wisdom, the understanding of anicca is really the bedrock of the Buddhist teachings. It was the initial insight that impelled him to leave the palace where he was born and grew up in search of a path to liberation, to enlightenment. Siddhartha Gautama, our Buddha, so to say, grew up in very comfortable and protected surroundings in an area of India at the foot of the Himalayan mountains that's now known as Nepal, seemingly living the good life. His father and mother were the king and queen of the Sakyan clan in that area. And at Siddhartha's birth, a local wise man told his parents that this baby would grow up to either be an exceptionally wise ruler or he would become a renunciate and a great spiritual teacher if he encountered great suffering. So Siddhartha's parents, in order to keep him on the kingly track, set about to protect him from encountering suffering. And this is from one of the Buddha's discourses to his monks. Monks, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace, one where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, and one where blue lotuses bloomed, all for my sake. I used no sandalwood that was not from Benares. My turban was silk from Benares, as were my tunic, my lower garments, and my outer cloak. A white sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me from cold, heat, dust, dirt, and dew. I had three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, and one for the rainy season. And during the four months of the rainy season, I was entertained in the rainy season palace by minstrels without a single man among them. And I did not once come down from that palace during the rainy season. But all of this protection and luxury and sensual pleasure just couldn't keep him. It didn't satisfy. And at one point, as young people are wont to do, Siddhartha wanted to go out on his own to see what life was like beyond the palace walls. So he has asked his good friend uh, uh, Chana, the chariot driver, to take him on a ride through, into and through town. <clears throat> well, his father heard about this and ordered everything and everyone that might cause some disturbance to his son to be taken off the streets, to be taken out of view. Well, of course, as we know, it's just not possible to have this kind of control over life. So not long after they were out uh, beyond the palace walls, 
Siddhartha saw a person walking down the road with a great deal of difficulty and covered with oozing sores. And he'd never seen anything quite like this before. He asked his friend Chana, what is this? What's wrong with this person? His friend replied, this is a very sick person. We'll all get sick. You'll get sick. I'll get sick. Your parents will get sick. At some point, everyone gets sick. Siddhartha had been so protected, it said, that he had never seen such a sick person. And he was disturbed by the sight, and he wanted to go home. And spent quite a restless night that night at home. But next day he wanted to go out again. So they were going down the road, and Siddhartha noticed someone moving very slowly, bent over with a cane and with dry, wrinkled skin and very thin, wispy hair. It said that he had not seen anything quite like this before. What's the matter with this person, Chana? Chana said, this is an old person. Everyone gets old. You'll get old. Your parents will get old. I'll get old. All your friends will get old. Well, Siddhartha said, okay, enough. Let's go back home. He spent another restless night. But out again the next morning, he wanted to go. As they're getting a little bit closer to town, to the village, he sees a group of people all dressed in white. And they're crying and they're wailing and they're carrying a plank above their heads with something on it that's covered with a cloth. And Siddhartha asked Chana, what's this? What's going on here and what is it that they're carrying? And Chana replied, this is a funeral procession. They're carrying a dead body. Everybody dies. I'll die, you'll die, your parents will die. Well, again, young Siddhartha was quite disturbed and said, enough, enough for today. Let's go home. Well, that night he barely slept. But he wanted to go out again the next morning. Not long after they were riding in the chariot, Siddhartha noticed a man who was draped in orange cloth walking down the road. And he was walking with a lightness and a grace and a flow about him, bearing an air of peacefulness and ease. And Siddhartha said to Chana, who's that? And Chana responded, this man is a renunciate, a yogi. He's let go of his regular worldly life in search of the truth. And Siddhartha responded, this is enough, let's go home. It's said that because of Siddhartha's many lifetimes of development into an extremely sensitive and compassionate human being, the sights that he saw, what are called the four heavenly messengers, sickness, old age, death, and a, a truth seeker, a yogi, that this, these sights saw, struck him very deeply, struck him quite profoundly. He was moved by the impermanent, insubstantial nature of life of the first three me- that the first three messengers displayed. And also by the suffering that he witnessed in relationship to these first three encounters. And he also found himself interested and quite powerfully drawn towards what the fourth 
messenger represented, seeking peace, seeking freedom, seeking the truth. And again, from one of the Buddha's discourses. Even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me. When an untaught person, subject to aging, to illness, and to death, not beyond any of this, sees another who is aged, ill, or dead, he or she is often horrified, humiliated, and disgusted, oblivious that she too or he too is subject to aging, illness, and death. And if I, who am subject to aging, illness, and death, not beyond any of these things, were to be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another person who is old, ill, or dead, that would not be fitting for me. And the Buddha goes on. As I notice this, the healthy person's intoxication with youth, health, and life entirely dropped away. Why should I, who am subject to disease, old age, and death, seek that which is also subject to disease, aging, and death? Monks, there are three forms of intoxication. Intoxication with youth, intoxication with health, intoxication with life. And the Buddha goes on. I overcame all intoxication with health, youth, and life, as one who sees renunciation as rest. For me, energy arose. Unbinding was clearly seen. One of the most prevalent myths that we live with, and often quite unconsciously, is the myth that we can control this changing experience we call life. The Buddha talked about how powerful and consequential it is to experience just one moment fully absorbed in the feeling of metta. He also said that even more powerful and fruitful than this is when there's one moment of clearly seeing the rapidity of the arising and passing away of phenomena. The stage in practice where one knows very clearly and very surely the momentary nature of all appearances. The powerful, direct experience and deep knowing of impermanence. The seed of liberation The seed of freedom lies in this clarity of seeing and knowing. And from the Buddha, what is born will die. What has been gathered will be dispersed. What has been accumulated will be exhausted. What has been built up will collapse. And what has been high will be brought low. All conditioned things are transitory. Those who realize this are freed from sorrow. This is the path to freedom. Everything in this world, everything in this universe, begins and ends, is born and dies, is constantly changing form. Every form of life, every object, every relationship, 
every sensation, every thought, every feeling, every mind state, every perception, every experience, every breath. The world of form outside and the world of form within, none of it is static. Our earth feels so solidly here, seems so permanently in place. A few years ago I received a postcard from a friend that had a really beautiful photograph on its front side. Some sand dunes with mountains behind them. And looking at this photograph was a very uh, pleasant experience, beautiful photograph. I turned the card over and this was the explanation on the back. The gypsum forming these dunes originated from dry flats 20 miles west of the park, deposited as seabed evaporites some 250 million years ago, when an ocean covered this area, creating at that time the limestone reef known today as the Guadalupe Mountains. Approximately 10 to 12 million years ago, when this region was uplifted and erosion began, the eroding gypsum was left along streams and riverbanks, and later the prevailing southwest winds blew it up against the base of the Guadalupe Mountains. So then I turned the card uh, back over to the photo side and kind of saw it with a different eye and yet still with a very pleasurable feeling of viewing a beautiful photo. The places that we live in often appear and feel as though maybe they've forever been the way they are now. Our attitude and actions often reflect us. I taught Dhamma in Israel every few years over a period of 10 years, a place where so much strife has been going on for centuries around whose place it is. And at one point, uh, while I was there teaching, I found out that Jerusalem, which is a city built on rock, of rock, built of Jerusalem stone, on Jerusalem stone, that city has been destroyed and rebuilt 13 times over the centuries. With all of the traveling that I've done over the years, there have been times, and this just happened actually a couple of nights ago, I've looked up into the sky uh, to find stars and star formations that are familiar. Kind of like meeting and seeing old friends, no matter where one is. And as I said, I found myself doing this a couple of nights ago. At one point I found uh, this in the newspaper, uh, an article in the newspaper called Andromeda is Coming. Our own Milky Way galaxy is on a collision course with another galaxy, but you won't need to buy that insurance just yet. The most likely scenario is that Andromeda would first swing by our galaxy. It would then take perhaps a hundred million years to make a slow U-turn before plunging into the Milky Way's core. Another burst of star formation will then occur, with winds from the shock waves driving out remaining gas and dust. After that, old and new stars will intermingle to form an elliptical galaxy. 
There will be no trace of the earth, save perhaps the 1970s era pioneer and voyager probes that are now beyond the solar system. The fireworks aren't due for another five billion years, long after the sun has burned out and reduced earth to a frigid cinder. Five billion years from now, we'll all be dead anyway, said Hubble scientist Edward Weiler. (laughs) However, if we move out to the stars someday, our descendants will certainly witness that from somewhere else in the galaxy. The word form implies for us a solidity. But in reality, all forms are forming and unforming, coming together and coming apart constantly and without end. So our world can't really be solidly objectified. Our world internally and externally isn't a noun, it's a verb. It's constant, incessant activity. And most of the time, we really only know this as an abstraction, as a concept. And actually, I think even more often we forget it, or we ignore it, or we're constantly distracting ourselves from it by accumulating, by planning, by living in and out of memories, by fantasizing, hoping, expecting, coveting, fearing. If we rigidly, tightly, Hold on to how we want the future to be, or even how you want your next sitting to be. All of our energy gets used up in these thoughts. And then inevitably we come to face disappointment or anger or judgment or sadness or grief. And then we've missed the fullness of the present moment. We've missed what Thich Nhat Hanh calls our appointment with life. And we're reinforcing, we're perpetuating the delusion, a false sense of control and permanence. So actually much of the time we're practicing permanence. Much of the time we almost desperately, I think, many of us want everything to stay as it is. to continue as we know it, or to become the way we want it to be, so much so that we believe we have control, that things will do what we want them to do. But this belief is really only make-believe, made-up beliefs. As our practice deepens and as we begin to sense and see and know more clearly, we discover that actually Belief has little or nothing to do with reality. And that the tighter we grasp on to our beliefs, the more limited our life is. A good question you might ask yourself now and then is, how do I construct my life? Or how often do I construct my life on this kind of flimsy, rickety foundation of make-believe? made-up beliefs, with all of their assumptions, sometimes misinformation, 
varying and changing opinions and ideas about this and that, and then hold on to it all quite tightly. As we learn to pay a kind of extraordinary attention to our experiences of body, mind, and heart, we begin to directly touch, to experientially know the constant rapidity of change, the seeming solid substantiality of form, to the smaller, maybe even minute micro-changes in bodily sensations, and to the seeming substantiality of thoughts as they fly through the mind. There's a Tibetan teaching that says all thoughts, good, bad, happy, sad, vanish into emptiness as the imprint of a bird in the sky. There's a story that I'm told is true about a particular physicist who had done a great deal of research on matter and its components, breaking it all down and breaking it down and finding nothing substantial. It's said that at that point, he went a little bit crazy and he started wearing huge padded slippers just in case he fell through the floor. In reality, the very fabric, the very essence of life is change. So why do we fear, why do we resist this perfectly natural marvel, change, the beginnings and endings, the births and the deaths? Why can't we surrender to the truth of the moment? Why do we resist and fear so much of life? Without anicca, there would be no life. And from Thich Nhat Hanh, if there's no impermanence, the grain of corn will remain a grain of corn forever, and you will never have an ear of corn to eat. Impermanence is crucial to the life of everything. Instead of complaining about impermanence, we might say, long live impermanence. Thanks to impermanence, everything is possible. Looked at from this perspective, Anicca is actually an amazing natural marvel. The universal movement of constant change and the cycling of all of the life on the planet and the possibility of immediate presence with the potential joys in this changing process. Not getting caught up all the time, not getting lost and sinking in hopes and fears and attachments and regrets. We might consider that all of the life on the planet is dying all of the time in similar volume as, for instance, the new life that brings beauty, joy, and delight to us each spring. And the new day or the new life that greets us each morning when we wake up. And from William Blake, he who binds himself, or one who binds oneself, 
to a joy does the winged life destroy. But one who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. So how might we move into a deeper exploration and acceptance of the changing nature of things, the way of things, our nature as nature. There are many, many doors for us in our practice, in our life. It said the Buddha said that there, were, there are 84,000 Dharma doors. So a very practical example <clears throat> related to our meditation practice. So you've been sitting for an hour. A degree of stillness and sweetness and tranquility has developed. And it's well known. It's being known. And then the thought coming through, ah, this is good. I'll just stay here for another hour or maybe even more. And then strong bodily pain sensations in the legs start up. Maybe you continue to cling very tightly to your agenda, your hope, your preference to sit another hour and get through the pain or put up with it or maybe tough it out or find a way to get rid of it or maybe try to ignore it or somehow pretend it's not there so that you can meet your preference, your goal. This relationship to pain makes it a thing something solid, substantial, a concept, and something to control so that you can continue with what you've chosen to do. The set idea that you think will lead to your awakening. Sitting another hour. Or maybe you relate, maybe you relate to the pain via the without mind, what I like to call the without mind, meaning a mind not made up, a mind without any preferences or even any agenda, and maybe even without the concept of pain. You might simply directly and intimately connect with what is, seeing all the varying sensations occurring in your leg and notice them changing and moving, recognizing that this sit right now is a meditation with changing sensations. Nothing solid, nothing static. No preference, no clinging to anything in those moments, including a time frame. Just being with. Just being with, seeing, sensing, and knowing experience in the midst of the truth of how it is. This is fertile ground for wisdom to sprout up and blossom. The Adharmador, the mirror of the changing seasons around us and within us. Many years ago during a a three-month retreat that I was sitting over at the retreat center here at IMS, I was taking a slow walk through the forest out back. And it was during the height of autumn color here in New England. I was seeing the ground 
literally carpeted with rich reds and various shades of brown and clear yellows and shimmering golds and greens. It was really beautiful. I was quite immersed in the experience and then all of a sudden a knowing came in. Not through thought, but a deep intuitive sense that this beauty is death. That the world is dying in its unbearable beauty. And I cried. I cried off and on actually for a couple of days. Not continuously, though at times quite deeply. I was grieving the loss of the world, so to say. Feeling my heart breaking. And at the same time, elated. Though still on a conceptual level to some degree, it was an opening. An opening and a release. Soon after this experience, a friend gave me this haiku. When with breaking heart, I realize this world is only a dream. The oak tree looks radiant. This constant cycling, circling, the universal movement of life. Light to dark to light. Snowstorm to sunshine to cloud cover. Changing sensations in the body. The movement and changing sensations of the breath. As we look more closely at our own process through our practice, we might begin to see that we've been living under an assumed identity, the assumed solidity of our body and thoughts, quickly often followed by clinging onto the thoughts, feelings, and emotional states. All of the habitual fixations that we live with and believe and call our own, call me, call mine, and think that this is who we are. As we practice, we begin to experience, sense, and see more directly, clearly, and more often that things, that the phenomena of our life aren't necessarily as they appear, or at least as they've appeared up until now. We begin to experience the whole thing, or at least parts of it, as process happening, as changing sensations, changing feelings, as various changing manifestations of the myriad formations of mind and body, each with particular qualities and flavors and textures that are constantly changing in themselves on both a gross and very subtle level. And so our relationship to all of the forms, both inner and outer, begins to change. The compulsive, addictive, grasping, trying to hold on to the passing show begins to lose its strong attraction. Trying to hold on to what is actually uncontrollable, ungovernable, this ongoing miracle of constant change that we call life, begins to soften 
as we open our hands and our heart. And we begin to see how excruciating it is to grasp on so tightly. The fear that's underneath this impetus to control. The fear of being in and with life as it is begins to relax, open and weaken. The fear begins to fade as we surrender, as we begin to surrender more deeply to the truth of the moment. Now we're practicing impermanence. Occasionally over the years, people have asked me, as maybe uh, sometimes you've asked yourself or asked others uh, who practice, why do you practice? And at one point when I was uh, asked this question, much to my surprise, out of my mouth came, I'm practicing for my death. And so it is, I am practicing for my death. On one, one level, so that if all of the conditions allow, I'll have the great strength of clarity, uh, the clarity of concentration and mindfulness to be fully present with what we think of as the big death. I think for most of us, This moment seems like it will really be an extraordinary moment or extraordinary moment. (laughs) But actually, it will just be another moment. Another moment with really all of the same principles that apply to any other moment. Just simply a moment to be with the immediacy of what's occurring what's occurring in the body, the heart, and the mind. So in that sense, a moment just like any other moment to just be as you are. A moment to be approached and connected with a fresh, in a fresh way because it's a new moment. Beginner's mind, don't know mind moment. A moment that in fact has never been experienced before. So one aspect of the big picture of practice is that I'm practicing towards the possibility of being present in and with this moment. But over the years, the momentary reality of much of practice in the here and now has been with a mindful presence that recognizes and relinquishes the ways that the so-called self keeps recreating the, this assumed identity. This delusion of a separate, solid, static me with a capital M-E. Recognizing the habitually learned patterns that support selfing. And letting go. Relinquishing this again and again and again. 
One way that this could be said is that it's a practice of seeing the death of who I've thought I was and recognizing the truth of who I am. There are hundreds, thousands, millions of little endings, minute deaths, moment to moment, even just breath to breath, and in ways that we maybe never could have imagined or expected. As practice deepens and matures, it gets easier and easier to open to, clearly see, accept, and surrender to this utterly natural phenomena. The assumed solidity, the assumed identity of me, I, and you, that's so frightening to let go of, is seen through our practice more and more as just as process, beginning, changing, and ending, again and again, every minute, every second, through each sense door, if we're really attentive. So, for example, what appears to be a steady, solid flow of experience, even the presence of consciousness itself, is not as we ordinarily perceive it. The reality of body-mind experience can be likened to the separate frames of a film. The illusion being as though phenomena happens with an ongoing continuous flow. But in reality, it's all beginning and ending, arising and passing, arising and falling away on the most minute level, very rapidly, second by second by second. The acceptance of change, the acceptance of the forming and the unforming, of the birth and the death, is really, truly the acceptance of life. Acceptance of life and the nature of life. All of the aspects of who we think we are just keep changing, including what we think we want, what we think we need, our desires that often seem so clear and so strong and so right at any given moment. These two can change quite rapidly as I'm sure you have noticed at times. As we learn to pay closer and closer attention, we see that pleasant experience sometimes changes into unpleasant experience, or vice versa. We see that pleasant and unpleasant can very quickly move into likes and dislikes, and then rapidly move into seeming needs or to strong rejections. We see that we're momentarily relatively happy. We're momentarily relatively unhappy. All relative conditioned states of mind, totally dependent on a whole set of conditions, which are themselves also changing moment to moment 
states of anger, irritation, resentment, judgment, feeling so solid and seem so right and so absolute. Anger is a very powerful, energetic, passionate energy. With a clear attention into anger, seeing, knowing, and letting go of identification, letting go of self-referencing, my anger, my righteous anger, letting go of this contracted, self-centered quality inherent, seemingly inherent in anger, meaning pulling out the thread of self. We can then clearly see what's actually taking place from all sides, from all perspectives. With this, there's clear presence, immediate connection, with the possibility of then anger transforming into a mirror-like wisdom out of which can spring appropriate, compassionate action, if necessary. As we learn to receive experience with more clarity and with more ease, we begin to see ourselves as well as others, with less judgment we might begin to see that we are, to whatever degree, also still acting out, still acting out of and have in the past acted out of ignorance and forgetfulness. Acted, or actually more accurately, reacted out of old, conditioned, habituated places of suffering many times ourselves. And so we change. We begin to meet ourself as well as others with open-hearted clarity and more and more compassion. Thirteenth-century Zen master Dogen spoke about Buddha nature and its relationship to impermanence. He said, we do not just have Buddha nature. We are Buddha nature. When things are seen in their fleetingness and ephemerality, their impermanence, not only is understanding great wisdom born, but also the other pillar of deepest insight. Great compassion, impartial care, love that may include one's enemy. I think it's fair to say that probably most of us, at times, have had a very strong identification with our face and our body in relationship to how it looked when we were younger. Especially as we get older, this happens. (laughs) When my mother was in her late 80s and early 90s, there were times when the two of us would find ourselves standing next to each other in front of a mirror and looking at ourselves and at each other. And at one point when we were doing this, she said to herself and to me, I see an old woman. It's so strange. And she kept repeating it over and over. It's so strange. It's so strange. I see an old woman. I've changed so much. It's so strange to see. 
Once when she was 91 and we were doing this, she said, I look older than everybody else in the whole world. (laughs) And then she said, it doesn't match how I feel inside. It's so strange, so strange, she said. Is it strange? I mean, really, is it strange? Stranger than what? It's just life doing its thing. Life being lifey, we could say. One of my Israeli students uh, gave me this poem by uh, an Israeli poet named Rachel Chalfi. It's called Such Tenderness. Such tenderness in our bodies when they abandon us slowly, reluctant to hurt us with a sudden jolt. Gradually, wistfully, like a semi-sleeping beauty, they weave for us tiny wrinkles of light and wisdom, not faults of an earthquake, an airy network, cracks of horror. How kind of our bodies that they don't alter our faces all at once, that they don't break our bones with one blow. No, cautiously, like a pale moon bestowing its glow, they illumine us in a set of grieving nerves, fold our skin at the edges, harden our spines, so we can withstand it all. Such beauty, such tenderness in our bodies that gradually betray us, graciously prepare us, tell us in whispers, little by little, hour by hour, that they are leaving. Have you ever looked in the mirror at your face for a long time? I mean, just focused and looked for a while. It keeps changing. It just keeps on changing. Whose face is this? Who is this face? Who sees? Once in a long retreat that I was sitting, I sat outside a lot and observed the grasses each day in the late fall, noticing that the grass was losing its moisture, drying up, losing its color, changing shape, changing form, curling over, being very acutely aware of all of this day by day. Are we really any different than this? What is the Dhamma of grass? Or you? Or me? No matter how much moisturizer we use, (laughs) no matter how many vitamins we take, no matter how many energetic walks we take, or how much yoga we do, no matter how much good, healthy food we eat, our skin dries out. Our hair loses its color. Our bodies change shape. No matter who we are or how hard we try, we just don't stay young. This mass of skin and bones has its schedule to keep. 
And there's nothing that we can do about it. And a poem from one of my favorite poets, Liselle Mueller. She calls it Fugitive. My life is running away with me. The two of us are in cahoots. I hold still while it paints dark circles under my eyes, streaks my hair gray, stuffs pillows under my dress. In each new room, the mirror reassures me I'll not be recognized. I'm learning to travel light like the juice in the power line. My baggage, swallowed by memory, weighs almost nothing. No one suspects its value. When they knock on my door, badges flashing, I open up. I don't match their description. Wrong room, they say, and apologize. My life in the corner winks and wipes off my fingerprints. It's hard to see how we can continue to keep what in this culture is almost like a secret. With everything changing and aging and such multitudes doing the dying. If we're really truly inclined towards freedom, we have to give up the notion that change or even death Is a catastrophe or detestable or avoidable or strange? Our practice directs us towards learning directly, learning experientially about change, the macro and micro cycling of life, and that we, our our body-mind continuum, is not somehow separated from this process. At the age of 18, my closest high school girlfriend and I went to Stratford, Ontario for a few days to see some Shakespearean plays. And on our way home, we were in an automobile accident and my friend was killed. It was amazing. One minute she was alive, driving the car, and we'd had really three wonderful days together. And the next moment she was lying in the middle of the highway, dying. And myself with just a few scrapes and bruises. I was washing her dying body with water. And then she was just gone. It was an extremely powerful wake-up call for me. And not long after she died, I resolved that I would live life fully every moment, every second, because now I knew that it could end in a second. And of course, I've forgotten my resolve many times, but I've also remembered it many times. This experience with its lucid insight into impermanence was a big part of what eventually guided me towards the Buddhist teachings and practice. Although in my 18-year-old self, I really didn't think or word it this way. And it's been interesting to see how this resolve to live fully every moment has unfolded over the years. There's been an ongoing letting go of many of the complexities and many of the seeming necessities of what we call normal life. 
Living more fully has meant living more simply, which has allowed me to then be more fully with the moments of living, the process of change, the beginnings and endings, the births and the deaths. As a lay practitioner, this letting go or renunciation has evolved over the years to be a relinquishment of that which doesn't serve awakening. And as I'm sure many of you have found, it's a process that unfolds quite naturally through our practice, either by conscious choice, a decision made between this and that, or simply through being present with a very clear mindful attention and responding in whatever ways are healthiest and most appropriate, both for oneself and in relationship to others, which at times might result in letting go or renouncing some of one's habitual ways of engaging or not engaging, inwardly and outwardly, including recognizing and letting go of some of one's attachments, which doesn't at all mean rejecting the people who we're closest to, but rather giving us the possibility of relating to them in what might be a new way. There's a Native American uh, teaching called A Cherokee Feast of Days, which says this, Autumn, can there be anything more beautiful than the seasons of a tree? A tree stands in beauty from year to year and keeps its grace and dignity. We learn when we watch a tree. It constantly prunes itself, continually sheds any excess. The Buddha said that living a single moment, seeing the impermanence of all conditioned things, is more valuable than living a hundred years without seeing it. Clear and sure insight into anicca leads us towards the end of confusion and anguish and towards the understanding of the cause of suffering. Very surely, knowing the momentariness of all appearances opens the door of insight into the conditional, impersonal nature of all things and of all phenomena. In our thinking, most of us assume that permanence provides security. But in actuality, although change might be very difficult and at times quite disturbing, at least at first, as we open to it and as we get to know it more deeply, anicca can be a profound inspiration to go deeper into our practice. And we may also come to realize that on one level, it's truly a gift of life. What if nothing ever changed? Can you even imagine what it would be like if nothing ever changed? An incredible nightmare. No change, 
no life. In 1985, my house burned down to the ground. No one was there when it happened. My three adult sons and I were away visiting my mother, who was living in Mexico at that time. A few days after we'd arrived at my mother's, I received a phone call from a friend who lived down the road from our house in the Michigan woods. And he called to tell me that my house had burned to the ground. Well, my first response to him in that phone call was, you're kidding. (laughs) But of course, (laughs) who would call a friend up long distance on Christmas and make such a joke? He was not kidding. So after we finished our very brief conversation, I hung up the phone and I cried very hard for about 15 minutes. And my mother, who was standing right next to me, just without asking any questions, just put her arms around me and and held me. And then after that, my brother and I, who was also there visiting, we sat down and we talked. And by the end of our two-hour conversation, The fire turned out to be a gift. I didn't have any things to hold me. I didn't have any things to bind me anymore. The spiritual path had burned its way open for me, so to say. And as some of you know, I'm sure, in Asian countries it's not at all unusual for people in their 50s and 60s whose family responsibilities are essentially finished to go and live the rest of their life as a spiritual life. To make a long story short, about one year after that fire, I ended up going to Asia for about a year and a half and I practiced quite ardently, quite diligently, and then continued Uh, this way upon coming back to this country for many years. If it wasn't for that fire, there's a strong possibility that I wouldn't be here with you now in this way. That huge change was a great gift that's still unwrapping itself. and a haiku from Basho. Since my house burned down, I have a better view of the rising moon. (laughs) And from Carlos Castaneda's book, Journey to Iksan, the thing to do when you're impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death just makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. Not long before Carlos Castaneda died, he and three of his friends were having lunch together. And I'd like to uh, read uh, a piece that was written, or part of a piece that was written by a man named Michael Ventura, who was one of these three friends having lunch with Carlos. He was much thinner, older, obviously ill. 
but for all his fragility he seemed much livelier, happier, and even funnier. A woman at the table said she loved her job, her husband, her child, but still she felt a lack. She had no spiritual life. How could she achieve a spiritual life? Answering the woman, Carlos didn't change the lightness or generosity of his manner. Yet a steely thing came into his voice, a tone that made his words pierce all of us. He said that when she got home at night, she should sit in her chair and remember that her child, her husband, everyone she loved, and herself were going to die, and that they would die in no particular order, unpredictably. Remember this every night, and you'll soon have a spiritual life, said Carlos. Later in the conversation, this woman asked how she could discipline herself to follow his advice and follow it deeply so that it wouldn't just be an exercise. Carlos said, you give yourself a command. On the page, there's no duplicating how he said it. He spoke quietly, but it was as though he'd suddenly jammed a knife into the tabletop. What's this mean, one of us asked. It means that you give yourself a command. And that was that. A command is not a promise. A command is not trying. A command is something that must be obeyed. His tone invokes something deeper than the idea of mere will. His was a call to action. He wasn't talking about mulling or analyzing or wishing. To step on the path, you step on the path. There's no substitute for that. About a year later, the woman who'd asked those questions at our lunch sent a pamphlet that Carlos had requested she send on on to me. And one passage goes, Sorcerers understand discipline as the capacity to face with serenity odds that are not included in our expectations. For them, discipline is a volitional act that enables them to take anything that comes their way without regrets or expectations. For sorcerers, discipline is an art, the art of facing infinity without flinching, not because they are filled with toughness, but because they are filled with awe. Discipline is the art of feeling awe, said Carlos. We don't grow in a straight line but in ascending and descending and tilting circles. And what makes this all bearable is awe. That undefended, open-hearted quality we could call awe in relationship to all of it, in the relationship to the way of things. The truth of impermanence is a gateway out of the feeling of separateness. It's a gateway out of the suffering of self-centered existence. We begin to understand that we are intimately woven into this endlessly changing reflective web of life. And we also really, truly begin to understand the suffering in ourselves and in others. The suffering and anguish created by trying to hold on in resisting the truth that every facet of life within us and surrounding us 
is not fixed, not permanent, not static. We and it are intricately woven together with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted jeweled net of life. About 14 or 15 years ago now, I took my mother in to live with me at my home in Taos, New Mexico, where I live, which turned out to be the last 15 months of her life. Early one morning at the age of 92, she died in her bed. And within a very short time after her death, as I was sitting closely and attentively with her body in her bedroom, I very clearly saw all of the tension, the accumulated tightness of anxiety and fear and irritation and clinging, I saw all of this just dissolve from her face. With a transformation in my mother's face in those moments into an exquisite face of peace and ease. This experience was a very powerful teaching and inspiration for me towards deepening my practice in the here and now. With a very strong sense of why wait until death for this peace and ease. Our daily practice right here in retreat and in our daily lives brings us to confront, sense, and receive the river of change and uncertainty, the river of anicca. Our continuing diligent practice is bound to render us more patient, forgiving, generous, and inclusive, with humor, goodwill, compassion, and wisdom. As the understanding of anicca deepens, which arises out of continuing and deepening direct experience of impermanence, it actually brings a great relief and lightness into our life. We no longer need to haul around such a heavy load. There's the time and the energy available to live to our heart's content. In closing the talk, this evening with a poem, a short poem, by an Australian uh, cartoonist and poet named Michael Lunig. And with each of his poems, he, he draws a cartoon. So I'm going to quickly describe the cartoon that goes with this poem. There's a man, a line drawing, and this man standing, standing up, and his left arm is outstretched, straight out, and in his hand he's holding a frying pan. And in the frying pan there's a big blob of black stuff with smoke billowing out of it. And his head is turned towards the frying pan. His eyes are very wide open, looking at it. And this is the poem that goes with that cartoon. 
We give thanks for the invention of the handle. Without it, there would be many things we couldn't hold onto. As for the things we can't hold onto anyway, let us gracefully accept their ungraspable nature and celebrate all things elusive, fleeting, and intangible. They mystify us and make us receptive to truth and beauty. We celebrate and give thanks. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. And we'll close our evening.